Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. You and I need to embrace the challenge of greater interdependence. Christianity is you and I saying that is the new life I signed up for. And it's a little stinky. It's, you know, it's a little bit not like what I would like. It's a little bit messier to bear one another's burdens. A little bit more uncomfortable for me to be that vulnerable. And even things like James 5, confessing my sins to one another and praying for each other. It's just, I'd like to pray for my things. You pray for your things. But no, that's not how it is in the church. Whether you knelt at the front of a church or quietly bowed your head when you became a Christian, you willingly accepted a relationship with Christ. And it makes sense that in order to develop your relationship, you need to spend time with Him. But how do you feel about His church? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares explores the blessings and conflicts that come with your connection to the church. I'm Dave Drewy, and we're in Acts 9, 17, as Pastor Mike Fabares opens up a message titled, Saul, New Challenges. It is interesting how many people enthusiastically accept the difficult circumstances of so many things. There are so many challenges related to things like going off to college or starting a new career or getting married or joining the gym or having children. They're all going to change your life and complicate your life, and there's a lot of costs and pains and trials associated with all those things, and yet people continue to gladly do those things. matter of fact, Jesus said in John 16, it's like someone, a mom, who's so excited about having a new baby, bringing a human into the world, as it's translated, that the labor pain, it fades to the background. It becomes something that she's willing to downplay because of the joy of having a child. And they go off and do it a year or two later, again and again. It's just, it's seriously putting the pain and the challenge and the cost in perspective. Certainly the same is true of what God said about Christ regarding his own death on a cross, It says in Hebrews 12 that Christ, for the joy set before him, on the other side of the cross, he he gladly looked at the cost of the cross and, and downplayed it, right? He despised the shame of it all. He was willing to think less of it because of what it was accomplishing. I mean, there are so many things about the Christian life that have that attached to it, that there's a price to pay, but it is so worth it. There's an unparalleled benefit for you and I to be sitting here this morning saying we know God and we're increasingly knowing him better as the years go by, that we are forgiven, 100% completely forgiven of all the sins that we have committed, that we are completely accepted before our creator in Christ. Those are unparalleled benefits. And yet we know that it comes with an associated set of challenges and costs. And while some people go off to school or have a child or get married or start a job and they complain a lot about the costs, we like to remind those folks that, listen, this is uh, something that needs to be overshadowed and put in perspective by, by the benefit. And be good for us to do that because we really will give up a lot of, of joy. We'll, we'll really be beset with disappointment and discouragement and disillusionment and we'll add a lot of complaining to our lives when we don't keep all of that in perspective. As we have been studying the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who had become the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, we have seen the beginning of the Christian life for him begin with a 
a series of reminders about the radical change, including the costs associated with following Christ. Matter of fact, when Ananias was told, as we saw last week where we left off in verse 14, that there's this great reminder of suffering that's ahead for Paul. I'm, I'm going to show you, actually in verse 16 in particular, the many things that that he's going to have to suffer for my name. As he carries my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the Jews, all of this will come with an associated price tag that, uh, of course, he needs to identify and he needs to gladly accept. He needs to willingly embrace the challenge that comes with being a follower of Christ. And I think as we look at his life as a template, we can say, hey, we need to do the same. Just even if we are a new Christian and at the outset, and you may have recently been told to count the cost of following Christ, or you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're thinking, okay, I now know what it is to live in the trenches of the Christian life. We just need to every now and then step out and say, okay, all of the associated difficulties that go with it, they're, they're, they're worth it. But they need to be identified. They need to be in some way in our minds, at least in our imaginations, quantified. And we need to say, yes, that is a worthy price to pay. As a matter of fact, I am am glad to go through all of that because of what it means to be a Christian. So let's look at this text and see if we can avoid some of the discouragement and unnecessary frustration and disappointment that so many other Christians go through by looking at this and saying afresh, I am willing to pay that price to be a part of of the body of Christ. Start with me in verse 17. We're looking at verses 17 through 25 in Acts chapter 9. Let's read it first. Follow along as I read it for you from the English Standard Version beginning in verse 17. So Ananias, this is not the Ananias of chapter 5, remember, different guy living in Damascus way up north in Syria. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He was supposed to go to Judas's house on Straight Street and within the walled city of Damascus. And uh, Saul would be there. Of course, he was told he was going to be there. He was going to be praying. And he'd been fasting for a few days. And he was blind, of course, after, after getting knocked off of this horse, you might remember, as he approached Damascus. And laying his hands on him, he said, so here's Ananias saying to Saul, who would become Paul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. Now, he didn't have scales in his eyes, right? This is a a phrase you could translate, and the concept is it it is as though there were scales in his eyes, like he had a a mask on or some kind of, of blocking, some kind of something over his eyes, which, of course, he didn't. But the idea was it was like someone pulled this this face mask off of his eyes, right? He now could see uh, something like scales. It was as though scales or something were closing his eyes were now opened and he regained his sight and he was baptized. So Ananias here in front of, I'm sure, some of Paul's remaining entourage at Judas's house there are watching him. There's people I'm sure that came with Ananias. Judas, of course, was there at his own house, we can assume. And they all watch now Saul of Tarsus, the former Pharisee who came to persecute the church, saying, I am now a follower of Christ. I declare this publicly through my water baptism. And taking food, remember he had been fasting. Taking food, he was strengthened, of course, you can imagine. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, in other words, the thing that he starts doing right out of the gate in his new Christian life here is he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. It's not a popular figure to be talking about in the synagogues. But he's saying, no, I'm going to tell you all about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. He is the son of God which is a a phrase we often talk about here from the platform from Daniel chapter 7 that has to do not just with his tightness with the Father, but his majesty and his 
deity, the fact that he has one who has all authority and power over all the people of the planet, that he's going to one day be enthroned over the earth. He is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. They're like, wow, I can't believe this guy is now for all this, right? Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? The guy, he was, was arresting people and having them killed who were proclaiming his name. Now he's doing that. He's proclaiming his name. I mean, think about it. Has he not come here, all the way up here, a multiple days journey up to Syria? Hasn't he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound, those people that call on his name, who call on Jesus, bound before the chief priests? But Saul, man, he kept being challenged, and he kept being denied, and he kept having people argue, but he increased all the more in strength. And, and he was winning these arguments with many. He confounded the Jews who, who lived in Damascus, not only because of who he was and now who he is, but even in his arguments because he was proving that Jesus was the Christ, Christos, that transliterated word into English, the Mashiach, the Old Testament Hebrew word translated into English or transliterated is Messiah. This is the anointed one, the one from the Old Testament that everyone was supposed to give their homage to, the one who would be king, right? Prophet, priest, and king, as it turned out. He is that one. He was dismissed before, the object of the scorn of Saul of Tarsus, and now he's saying, no, he's the one. I was wrong. Verse 23. When many days had passed, which, by the way, that phrase, if you know your Bible well, Sunday school grads, you'll know there's that passage over there in Galatians chapter 1 where he talks about spending three years in Damascus. Three years, the reckoning, by the way, much like looking at a calendar where it says 2021, and if you end up looking at the calendar and it says uh, 2023, uh, you would say three years in a Jewish reckoning. So we don't know how many months it was, but it traversed over three different years. And so that was many days. He goes out into Arabia, by the way, I should say that. Arabia, we often think of in the south, if you know your biblical geography a little bit, or modern geography, you think of it way down there, like if you know your biblical geography, Mount Sinai, where Moses got the law. And I often thought, wow, when I was first reading the Bible, well, that's a weird, that's a long way. I mean, that's, that's going to be a seven, eight, nine-day journey at best. That's a long way to go, maybe, maybe two weeks. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the northern Arabian desert. The Northern Arabian Desert was actually the gateway to that was the walled city of Damascus. Matter of fact, it doesn't take days at all. Matter of fact, you can walk right outside the city walls of Damascus and into the sand wilderness, and what you've got is, uh, I guess if you're doing it this way for you, from Damascus up here in Syria, you walk right into the Arabian Desert. Oh, way down there, it goes all the way down in this, this vast desert, all the way down to the tip, if you want to think about Arabia down in Sinai. But up here in the Northern Arabian desert. That's where Paul leaves Damascus as his headquarters now into three different years on the calendar, and he's learning, relearning. I'm sure as a Pharisee, knowing the scriptures as well as he did, memorizing so much of it as a child and teaching it, now he's looking at all, knowing, well, wait a minute, this Jesus is the Christ, this Jesus is alive, and he's retooling all of this. And the Bible says that Jesus himself is teaching him in that desert experience that he has. So many days, that includes a lot there, if you want to kind of harmonize all the things that Paul says about his early Christian life. But he comes back to Damascus. That's his base of operation, at least at the beginning here, and the Jews plotted to kill him. We've got to kill this guy. But their plot became known to Saul, that they were watching the gates night and day in order to kill him. So he sneaks into the city at some point. He gets in there. They don't know where he is. They can't flush him out of one of the houses. It's a very compact place. There's a lot of places to hide, and they keep watching the gates, knowing if he's going to come in and out, into the surrounding areas of, of Damascus, we're going to find him at some point. So they, they posted people to, to find Saul. And so he's got no way out, except the disciples get very innovative here. And it says, 
The disciples, verse 25, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall. You might remember Rahab and the scarlet marker that she has about the spies and all that back in, in Joshua. A lot of these compacted cities. They build them with plenty of space initially with these big fortified walls to protect them from the ancient armies. And they get so impacted, they're building you know, actual apartments, if you will, condos into the walls. And there's some windows there. Well, one of those disciples had a place to live, a dwelling in the wall. And there was a there's a gateway there. You get your head out through it at least. And uh, they would shoot weapons through that or whatever it might be in the ancient world. But he was led out through that in a, in a basket, lowering him in a basket, which he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 and that picture of him so different than what we saw with him riding up on a horse up the road to Damascus. And now he's leaving as a, as a fugitive in a basket with people lowering down in a, in a basket with a rope. It's just an amazing turnaround. Now, let's just look at that. That's plenty for us to tackle here, verses 17 through 25. And I want you to think of all the ways that God could have done this. Let's start with how he initially got his attention. On the road to Damascus, at the early part of chapter 9, God himself knocks him off the horse. Christ, the second person of the Godhead, encounters Saul. So I know this. God doesn't need any instrument of a person to get anything done in Saul's life, he can do it all directly. As a matter of fact, it seems like Paul's even boasting about that to the Galatian churches, that he got his training there in the Arabian desert from Christ himself. No, that's true. There was a lot where Christ at the beginning and then in this intermediate seminary period that he's in, he ends up having a lot of one-on-one time by himself, right? God and him. But that's not how the Christian life is lived. And it's certainly not how God then proceeds to get him to where he wants him to be. And in other words, we have him struck blind. And what happens when he's struck blind? Well, we learned earlier, he's going to have to be led. He can't even now walk into the city that he's going to persecute without someone leading him. So he needs the instrumentality of someone in his entourage helping him in. Then he gets in to know what to do. He's got to wait for God. And God says, I'm going to dispatch a person. Could he have healed Saul's blindness without a person? Well, of course he could have. He blinded him without a person. He could have unblinded him without a person, but he doesn't do that. He says, no, there's going to be someone here. At the beginning of this passage, we see he's going to have to come and lay hands on him. So here's the instrumentality of a person. And then it starts with talking about the connection. The first thing he says is, middle of verse 17, brother Saul. (laughs) It's just even that. The terminology of the Christian family is that we're family. Brother Saul. Whether he was technically a Christian at that point or not, the point is he's about to become a Christian. Here is now a favorable encounter with someone in the body of Christ, and there's a sudden connection. Now you're in with us. And he becomes the instrument of God's will as well. God has sent me to you, Christ has, to regain your sight, and I'm going to be the instrument here in this picture of you being filled with the Spirit. You're going to be invaded by God's Spirit. And so because of that personal connection, he gets his sight back, and he is standing up, he, he rose up, and he was baptized. Even that. God could have had a lot of things done to get us identified with Christ. He could have commanded a lot of things, but he commanded this thing where you can't even do it yourself. The point is for you to be baptized. It's a passive verb by someone else. And so he's baptized. We assume here by Ananias, he's dunked into the water. You, you are now even seen to be identified with Christ through the community here of the instrumentality of a person, a representative here of the church. So you can't do, you're not doing that by yourself. And he, taking food, he was strengthened. Well, he, 
that food wasn't even his, right? It wasn't in his home. This was in Judas's home. He's being fed. He's been given, you can assume, for the last three days, a place to sleep every night. He's now dependent on these Christians in the city of Damascus, and he's dependent on the Christians to be identified with the church. He's dependent on the Christians to know God's will for his life in the beginning stages of his Christian life. He's dependent on Christians to get his sight back. And then it's no surprise that it says, for some days he was with the disciples, at Damascus. All a part of this communal thing that he stepped into. And it ends with, as I said, being lowered in a basket. You're not going to jump. You're going to break your legs. It's too high. You got to get in a basket and there's some guys. I don't know how many guys you think it takes to lower a guy in a basket. It's going to take a few. And, and they're there lowering him down. He's dependent on them even to get out of the city. Now, God could have done all of this we saw even Philip, like it seems like at least, the teleported out of the situation. God could have given him a sight back, taught him all he needed to know, and teleported him out of the city. But instead, he says, no, that's not how the Christian life is lived. And Paul goes on to teach this over and over and over and over again. The body of Christ is a communal situation. It's all of us being interdependent on one another. We're not mavericks. We're not, in, we're not isolated. We're not privatized. We're not just the people that just do it on our own. We're people that have to depend on one another. And here's the thing. You and I don't naturally like to do that. We have to do that in modern society, at least. Most of us, you didn't grow your own food this week. You probably didn't build your own house. We're just kind of on our own. Step into the Christian life, and God says, they're not playing by those rules anymore. You are now going to be increasingly interdependent. You are going to have to be depended upon. Paul's going to now be depended upon to take the name of Christ to the Gentiles, to the kings, to the nations, to the Jews. And Paul, you're gonna have to depend on people. There's gonna be a new set of interdependence because you now are a Christian. And I just want us to embrace that challenge because I'm sure it chafes against your feeling of wanting to kind of keep your stuff, your stuff, your life, your life, your hurts, your hurts, your stuff in your little corner. And you like to be like that because it is not as messy as kind of having my life affecting your life. I don't want to live in a commune like it seems like they did in the book of Acts where everyone, they had a need, they figured out who it was, and if I have to sell a piece of my property or my asset to meet your need, I'll do that. It was really different. I don't really care for that. I want to be dependent until I can be independent, and Christianity moves that marker and says, no, you're going to be more interdependent. Number one, if you're taking notes, you and I need to embrace the challenge of greater interdependence. Christianity is you and I saying, that is the new life I signed up for. And it's a little stinky. It's, you know, it's a little bit not like what I would like. It's a little bit messier to bear one another's burdens. A little bit more uncomfortable for me to be that vulnerable. And even things like James 5, confessing my sins to one another and praying for each other. It's just, I'd like to pray for my things. You pray for your things like I do in my neighborhood. But no, that's not how it is in the church. Matter of fact, your needs become my needs. This is like a family now. It's the difference between you being some, let's say you're a competitive ping pong player, which is a ridiculous way to say it because if you were really competitive, you'd call it table tennis. But let's just say you're a competitive traveling table tennis player. It's your game, your thing. Now, you didn't build the table and you didn't weave together and sew the net and you didn't build the ping pong balls. You probably didn't make your own paddle or maybe you kind of did and you adjusted and modified it. But you get up to play and it's you, you against your opponent, you against the world. And yeah, you didn't build the bus to get you to where you need to go or the pilot. You didn't fly yourself there. But you, you depend on people to the extent that you have to. But then it's your game and your life and your thing. Now go do it. Go get your education. Go get your job. You got your thing. And if you really aren't cool with that and you need a partner in life, well, then you play doubles and you get married. And 
you know, have a couple kids that sit and watch you play, whatever. But that's as far as we go. I, I'm not even sure I like playing doubles all the time is how most Americans think. It's just like your life, my life, maybe you have your checking account, my checking account. And we just like, to, we like our autonomy. Then you become a Christian. And it's like, nope, we're changing the rules of the game. Life is not gonna, now not going to be lived with your little tiny you know, atomic family here. You, you now are going to join a different kind of team. Right? It's like you now are joining a football team. And there's 10 other players. And you can't just hikes the ball to you and you just run. And there's, that's how we play every play. Just kind of take the ball down. The, no, it's a whole, you need running backs. You need tight ends. You need guards. You, you need wide receivers. It's a whole different game. And we now have to strategize together. I can't even do this without huddling up and figuring out what we're going to do next. My life is now so intertwined and interdependent on other people, I cannot see life the way I used to. Guarantee you that Paul with his colleagues as a Pharisee did not deal with his colleagues the way that Ananias is starting out even the conversation, Brother Saul. You have to lower this wall of autonomy. You and I should see ourselves as so interdependent that you're, you're saying, I just eschew all of the maverick thoughts, all the independent thoughts, all the isolated thoughts, all the privatized life thoughts. I, I cannot live that way and say that I'm living an effective Christian life or one that pleases the Lord. Paul was forced to see what it was like to have an increasing interdependence on other people. And I just want us to say, hey, I know it's not comfortable. I know it'd be easier for me to privatize everything. I know that I just want to be dependent only insofar as I have to. But the Bible says you need to push further and we need to accept that joyfully as one of the costs of being a Christian. Just have to do it. And I think that has to be taught in America more than it has to be taught in a lot of other places. It has to be taught in the West, in our independent, autonomous, free-thinking I'm my own guy. You've got to hear this more perhaps with a greater, longer, extended first point of a sermon than a lot of other cultures where that's the way they live a lot of their lives. They don't have to. They choose to be more interdependent. And we as a congregation, of course, stepping into the Christian life, it can rock our sensibilities to know how much God wants our lives to be lived within the intertwined relationships, communication, openness that God expects us to have. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares here on Focal Point and the start of a new message called Saul, New Challenges. The complete uncut version of this series is available on the Focal Point app and online at focalpointradio.org. Well, Pastor Mike never sugarcoats the Christian life, and he doesn't avoid the uncomfortable parts of the Bible that we sometimes want to skip over. But he does faithfully deliver God's unfiltered, uncompromised word every day. And if you think that hearing the straightforward truth of the Bible is exactly what we need more of in today's world, then please consider pledging a monthly gift to support this program by becoming a Focal Point Partner. Our partners are listeners, just like you, who have stepped up to help make this program available from coast to coast. So to set up your generous monthly gift, please get in touch with us by calling 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. And to thank you for your support, we'll gladly send you A.W. Tozer's excellent book titled Men Who Met God. 12 Life-Changing Encounters. It explores the transforming impact of an encounter with God 
and how it shaped the lives of several biblical figures. Request your copy of Man Who Met God when you make either a one-time donation or become a Focal Point partner this month. Again, you can reach us by calling 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. Or if you prefer, write to us at Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And we'll gladly send you a helpful pamphlet about the Twelve Disciples just for getting in touch, even if you're not ready to give just yet. Find out more when you call 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. Well, your salvation is a free gift, but following Christ isn't easy. Let's face it. You can't be a Christian these days without battling against your flesh, the culture, and even the devil. And that's going to be difficult. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you back to listen tomorrow to hear Pastor Mike Fabares tackle some of the common but challenging experiences in the Christian life. That's coming up on Ask Pastor Mike, Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, we live in a culture where every point of view demands affirmation. It'd be easy to tell people what they want to hear. But we must teach the Bible accurately, unapologetically, and without compromising and without editing it. God's Word is truth. If you want to send me a question, I encourage you to get in touch with us at focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.